So take your Bibles out and open them up, because Bible study, you got to have Bibles, right? <laughs> and we're going to be in the Gospel of John for our first couple of verses. We're continuing on and looking at the, the verses that seem to present difficulty to the doctrine of particular atonement or, or limited atonement, particular redemption. Um, and we have a few more that I, I want to cover this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off last time, and that was in the category of the passage that seems to teach that the work of Christ is for all people, for the entire world. So there is actually a couple of verses in John's Gospel that use that phrase um, of, the, of the world. So we, we want to look at that. First one will be uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. Okay, here we go. John writes in this passage, The next day he, that would be John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next passage we want to look at, kind of in parallel to um, this one, and it's uh, John 4, chapter 4, verse 42. And of course, chapter 4, that's about um, the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this passage near the, the end of the account, um, her, the, her fellow townspeople are speaking to her. And this is what uh, John writes that they said. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So what is John talking about here? Um, it, it would be easy to take these, uh, just cherry pick them out of the Gospel of John and get the idea that we're talking about a universal salvation, that the entire world is going to be saved. Um, however, we have to take it in context again, right, of what, what John writes in 
his entire gospel, and not only just John, but the other gospels, then also the entire New Testament, and then the Bible as a whole, including um, the, the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the, what we call the uh, Old Testament. So, there's a theological statement that's being made here that is important to the Gospel of John, and these, these quotes of these people who are involved, Jesus, Jesus interacts with during his earthly ministry, John is using their responses and what they say to, to bring out this theme so that, that it can be seen. And of course, when we're talking about a theme in some writing, uh, we're not going to necessarily understand it or see it clearly if we just pull out one sentence or a couple of sentences from it. If we know what the theme is, we could find a key sentence that points us to the theme, but it's difficult to, to um, establish and understand the theme just based on a very short passage. So, what's being said here is that um, this theological statement is that Jesus is the only Savior that the world will ever have. There'll be no other Savior. Um, it's, not like it's, it's not like waiting for a bus at a bus stop where you can, pass the, um, you can pass, let Jesus pass you by and wait for the next one that comes along for whatever reason. This is the only vehicle, so to speak, that we have that, that will take us to the point where we have salvation. And the, the phrase, the world. So when we see this sort of phrase, especially in the Gospels, we have to keep in mind that the, the, the man writing the Gospel, that's inspired by um, the Lord God to write this Gospel, where he's living and the time he's living. Right? The, so the world consists of what they know. Right, so, um, so the, the Jew, the ancient Jewish thought, uh, got very isolated, you know, let's say, and, and kind of um, uh, a superior form of thinking that that God had, had had blessed them with the oracles of God, with the law of God, and so thus, you know, they were special that they had earned a special place in God's um, economy, God's plan for the world, and that it excluded others. And the very important thing in the gospel, especially John's gospel, um, is that this salvation is for the entire world, which was very difficult for many uh, ancient Jewish minds um, to grasp. So it didn't matter what your culture was, what your custom was, what your traditional religion were. Jesus was the only way to salvation. And of course, you know, we've talked previously about a few verses that use the term all uh, in it, and we determined from the context that we could see by going back a few verses, or maybe to the beginning of the chapter, we could see that that, that all didn't mean every single person in the world included. That it was, it was um, um, specified to a specific audience. Quite often, you know, believers, us, you know, is, is the all, especially in the epistles, the letters um, to the church. So when we find these, and we're not, you know, we don't have the time um, to track down every single 
passage in the New Testament that uses the term all and determine what's being said here. But you have a good guideline now. So you can understand this, the use of this apparently very inclusive um, uh, pronoun, but it, it's a, exclusive, it's inclusive, I should say, to an exclusive group most of the time. Now we come to a passage that I think, and most commentators um, that I've studied in preparation for presenting this to you, they believe this to be one of the more difficult passages to explain. So I kind of saved it for last. And, you know, perhaps um, it's interesting. You know, if you read commentaries, I know many of you have, and some of you quite extensively, that sometimes we come across um, in, the, in the commentaries written by, by men of, of good, sound theological um, education and understanding and background, that they'll present something as being very difficult, you know, uh, to, to unpack, to understand. And sometimes you'll look at these things and you go, well, I, I, I don't have difficulty with it. I, I understand it, which is, which is great. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking universally that everyone should, should have problems with any passage that I say, well, this is a difficult one. You know, and maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't want you to, you to get it in your head. Well, you know, some of these things I can't understand because I've spoken to, you know, most of you here about various topics over the years. And I find that many of you have a very, a very good grasp of um, what these passages are, 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 are getting at. So, um, but there are others that, you know, like me, that may, may stumble with things. And we've got, you know, friends uh, watching on live stream and maybe later um, on our video feed, and, and perhaps this will help others if, it, if it's, you don't find it particularly needy, needful, I should say. Um, so sticking with our, our uh, theme this morning of John the Apostle's writing, let's turn to his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Very short verse. And John tells us here, speaking of our Lord Jesus, he says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we come to that, um, that kind of complicated word, could, could be complicated in a sense, very long word that that um, is not often encountered in modern-day evangelicalism, propitiation. Someone um, so brave as to want to give us a short working definition of propitiation this morning, if you could remember from our previous lectures. Who shall I pick? So many hands are up. <laughs> Substitute. Okay, substitute, Linda? It's, it's the means by which peace is made with God. Right. Both um, are, are part of the definition. And Brendan, now Brendan, and then James. Just to follow upon what Linda just said, 
God, God's wrath toward sin is a peace. God's wrath towards sin is a peace. Thereby his justice is uh, satisfied. In and, and God's justice is, is satisfied. I'm just I'm going to try and remember to repeat what you guys say so people uh, that are listening live stream can hear because that doesn't always work. James, you're next. And then Christian, I think you're after him. Would it be like the double imputation where Christ takes our sins and his righteousness is imputed to us? So James is suggesting it's a double imputation where we receive Christ's righteousness and Christ in turn takes care of our sins. Our sins are placed on him. And I think Christian agrees because from the look on his face, it's like, ah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So is that, was that it, Christian? Exactly. Okay. All right. Oh, very good. All very good definitions, all part of it. And, you know, it's because it's a complicated thing, this, this propitiation. Um, so it's what all you said, and it's like also the turning away of wrath. It's kind of like, um, you know, blocking someone. If you're, you know, a martial artist or, or, or someone like that, use, turning God's wrath to something else. And, of course, where does, where is it turned but to Christ, like, like uh, you all said. <clears throat> so, back to our, our, our verse here. So, what, what is difficult, I think, about this verse is that out of all of the passages we've looked at that, um, that we might say uh, need extra explaining for us to understand that they do not deny particular redemption, limited atonement. This one is unique because it, it, um, it seems to make a distinction within this, this, this sentence between limited atonement on one hand, where John says, um, not for ours only, Right, That's the, that would be the limited part. And it also includes universal, what might be universal atonement, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it seems like we have these two, these two views of the atonement set in opposition to each other here in, in the verse. And it seems, upon first reading anyway, that this, uh, this, this, sentence that John wrote supports universal atonement. So how should we understand it? Well, commentators have come up with three possible meanings. And I think each one of them would work. Perhaps all of them would work. But what they are is, number one, John may be stressing the universal application of Christ's work. What I mean by that is that this idea of propitiation, or as the New Revised Standard Version um, translates this word, and they, they translate it in such a way where it points directly back to the Old Testament, they translate it as sacrifice of atonement, right? So it makes it very clear um, the connection in propitiation. Um, and of course we know 
from our, from you know, the preaching you've heard, from the Bible run, reading you've done, from the Bible study you've done, that the sacrifice of atonement is a strongly Jewish concept, right? So, so um, there's that, and it's associated, of course, with the Jewish thought in the Day of Atonement, which is an important association there. So, um, so it's it applies this very Jewish idea to the non-Jewish world, let's say, to the Gentile world also. So that's one way um, commentators understand it. Applies atonement to Gentiles. So in that sense, all the people of the world, including Jews and Gentiles, so that's of every tribe and nation, right? That doesn't leave anybody out. So in that sense, Christ is a universal Savior because his salvation um, is not restricted to any certain class of people. That, that, that's that's uh, an explanation that we have to make sure that we, we keep in mind that it, it, we don't lapse into universality, that, that the atonement is for every single person, every single human being who ever lived and who ever will live, no matter their response to Christ's gospel. Second one, second uh, understanding. John could be intending to express the uniqueness of Christ's work. So this exclusiveness, uniqueness, exclusiveness, as a means of salvation, that is, Christ is, and this is a little bit difficult initially, so bear with me um, as, as we work through this. It's, 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 it's not a difficult idea, it's just difficult for me to express uh, uh, properly. Um, so... What this idea is that Christ being the propitiation for our sins is not just for the sins of a classification of people that the world regards as Christians. Okay, and this is, that's, hang on, I'm going to explain that. Um, and then, of course, those who uh, declare Christ as their Lord and Savior um, have their wrath propitiated by his death his resurrection and the atonement he brings, 
with the idea, this is what the, what the commentators are driving at, is that that's one class of, that that's good for Christians, but that there's another salvation for others that are not Christians. So this is, this is an outside, um, outside the church idea. Uh, if, if you, it's not inside the church idea where we're classifying different people. It's like, well, it's, it's your, your, your um, uh, typical, let's say, if there is such a thing, or, or let's say it's something that a, a non-believer, an unbeliever may say to you, well, you know, Jesus is good for you, but, you know, there's other means for um, other people. And so the, John is refuting that idea. He's refuting the idea that all roads lead to heaven, so to speak. That there is no salvation outside of Christ. That's the idea. Last is the timelessness of Christ's atonement. So, as John writes, Christ is the propitiation not only for the sins of those who are alive right now, but for all who will ever be born into the world until he, re he returns. So, as I said at the beginning, there may be layers here uh, intended by John in, in this verse. And we see that quite frequently in Scripture, don't we? that we do, the, the longer we, we study God's Word, the more we read God's Word, we see levels, deeper and deeper levels. Most of us here read our Bible daily, as, as all Christians should. And many of us have read, have read through the Bible for years and years. And don't we, each time we read through the Bible, we come to passages that we've read many, many times. And we see something in that passage that we have never seen before. So um, it's, it's often the case, at least my personal lived experience had been when I was a very new Christian, I would read a verse and I would see the meaning right away and that explained it and there was nothing more. And I didn't have a lot of patience for those who said, well, there's also this. Well, no, it very clearly says this. Well, yes, it does very clearly say that. And that's what these, these um, commentators are saying is like, these all fit and we don't find evidence in this verse to exclude any of them. So it could be, they're saying it could be layers of, of meaning. And I like, I like that idea because um, it's encouraging that, that God's word, I think, is so deep that it just, it invites us and draws us in to study more and more. It's, it's, it's something, you're, we're never going to get uh, everything out of our Bibles that God has put in there for us. And so we can look forward to eternity to get more. You know, I don't know even then if we're going to know everything. Maybe it'll just be a matter of learning in life everlasting, which would be uh, wonderful. So, <clears throat> final thoughts on 
1 John 2.2, which like I said will be our last um, difficult passage that we're going to look at. If the scope of this verse and its subject of propitiation is not restricted, though, in some way, if, if it's just, you know, if you look at that verse, and if, it just, uh, if you just accept it the way it is said without trying to, you know, place it in context like we've been, um, we've been talking about and training ourselves to do, then it teaches universal salvation, which we know, because I've said it enough, and you're probably tired of me saying it, that has been, universal salvation has been rejected by the church historically um, from very early on. And most Christians today, at least uh, what we would call the evangelical world, which the evangelicals, as, um, and I'm just using this as an easy uh, uh, term of representation, um, evangelicals uh, would be those um, Christians, Orthodox Christians, not heretics, but hold to a different view of atonement than we do who are in the Reformed branch of um, the church. Even those people would say, no, universal, universal salvation is clearly not taught in the Bible. Um, there, you, there are a few outliers there. There's some real popular, um, uh, well, they're called pastors by their churches that are on social media and things like that a lot that may argue for that, but um, this, that's simply not so. Um, so, this brings us to our next topic, and this is going to be an objection that some of the Arminian persuasion, those that hold to you know, the um, libertarian free will idea of the Gospels put out there um, by the triune God, and then it's up to us in our own infinite wisdom and understanding to make the right choice for Jesus. So this is an argument that I'm going to um, propose, or not, not I'm going to propose, but we're going to talk about that these folks use as kind of like a very good, they feel it's a very good argument as to why the doctrines of grace and reformed theology are not only not workable, but that we ourselves, the reformed Christians in the church do not even adhere to them. Some of them think this is the death blow to Reformed theology, that if someone would have just said this to John Calvin and Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and all those other great men that were in the very early waves of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, that this whole thing would have gone away of course, what would have happened? They'd be left in the Church of Rome, which would not necessarily be, well, would not be a good thing at all. So, one of the strong objections, like I've been talking about, is if God didn't intend to save all people without making any distinction amongst them, and if Christ did not die in order to take away the sins of all the people in the world, then unless those things happen, which are basically, that's kind of like the, the criteria or the, the, the thought behind um, 
the Arminian version of universal or general atonement. Um, so just to clarify, and, I, and you guys probably already realize this, when I talk about universal salvation, I'm talking about something different than um, general, and sometimes I'll say universal atonement. I don't want to be confusing here, but I mean these differently. Different, different commentators, different theologians um, interchange this here to, to reflect the Arminian view. The universal salvation would be, it doesn't matter if you accept Christ or not, you know, he's, he's, he's saved everybody. Even the worst sinner who rejects him uh, is saved. But general universal, general atonement, universal atonement, I mean something entirely different. We're talking then about the Arminian concept of atonement, where um, it's a potential atonement. So, if that idea is so, Let me rephrase it. If that idea, if that is not the case, this, this works better. If that is not the case, then it's not possible for Christians to preach or witness to the salvation of the gospel to all without distinction. The Arminian argument is, would be, hey, we can preach the gospel to all people, but you cannot. Because you believe that it's only for a specific particular group, the elect. However, we understand it to mean that it could be, it's open to, to all people. And that in fact, you'll even, they'll go, even go as far as this, we should not offer salvation in Christ to anybody because we have no way of knowing if that person is the one for whom Christ actually died. We have no way of knowing the elect from the non-elect. In other words, unless atonement is general, available to all who make the choice independently, then we cannot preach the gospel to all. Otherwise, we're preaching the gospel to those who are wicked that will remain wicked. How do we explain this? What is our justification for doing this? There, there are two answers First one is very easy. We do it because the Lord commands us to do it. And there are plenty of examples that we can find uh, in the Bible to uh, support this. First one is that, uh, let me write these down in case you're taking notes. First one is in Ezekiel. Chapter 33, verse 11. 
God speaking to Ezekiel here, and he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from, turn from his way and live, and turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Another one is Isaiah 55, 1. And as we go over these, perhaps it would be helpful to think, okay, um, does, who does this sound like is addressed to? Does the Lord God restrict who um, he's telling the prophet to speak to? Is he saying go and, and, and single out, separate the elect from the wicked and speak this to the elect? No, he does not. It's go to them. Go to everybody and, and, and say this. So our next example, Isaiah 55, 1, um, the prophet there writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Yeah, obviously, the Lord is not speaking about um, you know, free drink and free food here, is he? Does this sound familiar? Do we, have we heard something like this in the Gospels? Have we heard Jesus say something like this? Remember on the, um, uh, the, the Feast of Trumpets, the last day of that feast, when Jesus stands up and, and, and quotes from, from this to everybody that is in the temple for this great feast. Now obviously in that great feast there are going to be people who are elect. By God. And there's going to be people who are not elect, who've been passed over, who remain reprobate. But Jesus is saying this just like Isaiah was inspired to write it. It's for all people. In the Gospels, Let's look at Matthew's Gospel for a couple of passages. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus is speaking here. He's speaking to the crowds. And the crowds at times, as we know, were quite large. And then at times they dwindled away to nothing. That many abandoned him. Many of those who abandoned our Lord most likely were not amongst God's elect. But Jesus, speaking to the large crowd, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus is offered, offering himself to everyone freely. Now, with our Lord's example, he's offering himself to everyone freely, so should we offer the gospel to everyone free, freely, that we should share the gospel to everyone freely. And then we'll wrap up Matthew with Matthew 28, 19, what we call our great commission, where the Lord tells his disciples, including us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
There's no direction, no instruction here that we go out and somehow determine the elect from the non-elect and make disciples of them. Second reason. The gospel is not strictly speaking, an offer. And you may think, why, whatever do you mean, Pastor Ken? And as soon as I say it, you go, well, well of course, I, I, I know that. To be, the, the gospel, to be accepted or rejected according to each person's whim or fancy is simply not what we find in the Bible. The, the gospel is a command to repent, turn from your sin, and recognize Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Lord and Savior. It's only by doing this that afterwards a person can know that they are amongst Christ's people, his sheep, that they are amongst the elect. We have no way of knowing. Think, think back, brother and sister, to the time before you were actually a Christian. Um, you would have no idea if you were elect or not elect. And that is the predicament of those who are not yet in Christ. J.I. Packer, wonderful expositor, great theologian, um, pointed out, that the statement, the very popular statement that we hear so much, and sometimes we, we use it ourselves. We probably all have used it at some point in the past. Maybe we've gotten away from that as we've grown in maturity in our faith and, and, and have learned the Bible a bit better. But the statement, Christ died for you, which is so common in evangelism today, cannot be found in any of the sermons recorded in Scripture. The apostles never used this argument when they talked to people. The New Testament, think about this, the New Testament never calls on any man to repent on the ground that Christ died specifically and particularly for him. The basis on which the New Testament invites sinners to put faith in Christ is simply that they need Christ. We all have that need for Christ, and he offers himself to them. He makes that universal offer to all, and that those who receive him are promised all the benefits that his death secured for his people. What, what, what Brother Packer is saying is that do not go beyond what Christ himself did and what his... his um, his inner band of disciples, the apostles whom he specifically trained to go out and, and spread the gospel to all nations, do not go beyond their training. They've never done this. Christ never did it. So the, um, what is universal and, and all-inclusive in the New Testament is this, the invitation of faith. That is what is open to everyone.
So, going on with what Packer is saying about this. The gospel is not believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore yours too. Neither is the gospel message believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins and so maybe he didn't die for you. The gospel message is this and this alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you himself as Savior. Packer points out something I think is very important and we need to be mindful of this. Especially as we study this very interesting and very complex topic of atonement. That we have no business to put, to ask people to put faith in any view of the extent of the atonement. Our job is to point them to the living Christ and summon them to trust in him. So our present non-believing friends need not be concerned over what form atonement takes, is what Packer is saying. They need to be concerned with their need for Christ as their Savior. Only he can remove the stain of sin from them. So when we share the gospel with people, this is, this is a deep topic that we need not and probably should not get into because it's, it's complicated. And it is, it, is, it is meant for, I would say, um, the church to, to understand. It's, it's not the, the milk of the gospel, if you will. It's the, it's the strong meat of the gospel that we're dealing with. And just like a, a newly birthed baby, we're not going to shove a porterhouse in that baby's mouth. The baby needs its mother's milk. So just like when we sharing the gospel is, is, is very simple. You know, that, that, there, that there's the law, we've broken the law, and the only way we, can, um, we cannot atone, amend for our breaking of the law, only God himself can do that, and he does it through God the Son, as applied by God the Holy Spirit in, in our lives. And that's the extent of it. Now, <clears throat> we all know people or have known people that are very smart and, and sometimes non-believers can be well-read in theology. And that sometimes non-believers can enjoy to argue these points. And they'll want to draw us into these discussions. Well, well, that's up to you whether you want to have this discussion. If someone knows of it and they're asking you questions, certainly there may be times when, when, you, when it'd be quite appropriate to, to discuss it with them. But beware. Beware of the snares being laid for you by someone that may be antagonistic to the gospel. It's very, it's very appropriate for us to say, well, friend, you know, that's a very deep subject. And perhaps at some point in time, I, I, would, I would be happy to discuss this with you. But for now, I want you to consider that you're a lawbreaker. So whether the atonement is particular or general is completely irrelevant to you. Because right now, friend, you're in violation of the law and you're going to face judgment. You're going to face justice. However, God is offering mercy through Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that. And that's just a suggestion, but um, 
you know, each situation, of course, is, is different. But getting back to this, um, consider uh, Charles Spurgeon. He's a good example of the kind of preaching that, that, that J.I. Packer is talking about. Spurgeon, of course, uh, a Baptist, was a very committed Calvinist at a time when there was much pushback amongst the Baptists on Calvinism. Um, he absolutely believed in definite atonement. In fact, the doctrines of grace, he said he believes in the doctrines of grace because they're biblical. They're in the Bible. That's why I preach them. That's why I believe them. But even though he believed in particular atonement for God's elect only, it didn't stop him from being one of the most effective evangelists of his time, and, and perhaps even beyond that. Um, he did not lie to people, though, and tell them that he knew they were elect. No, he was very careful. For Cal, or excuse me, Spurgeon, it was enough to say, you are a sinner, and Jesus died for sinners. If you would be saved, you must repent of your sin and believe the gospel. That applies to all people. And did his message, and the fact that he was a Calvinist, was, was that message weakened by his Calvinism? No, it, it, it was not. In the very least, in fact, I think it probably strengthened it because my personal experience, my personal belief is that by the doctrines of grace, we are strengthened in our faith, that our faith becomes rock solid when we understand that. So suppose we go to the loss with the message that Christ died for everyone, but without the conviction that Christ's death actually accomplished salvation for those who believed. In other words, a redemption that didn't actually redeem, just possibly redeem. Maybe it, maybe it redeemed. Potentially it redeemed. It, it could be, but maybe it could not be. That, that, that's our alternative here. Or do we go in with that, yes, Christ's salvation atones without a doubt forever, eternally for God's elect. And you know you're God's elect if you respond to it and you stay in faith and you have that transformation that we've experienced. So James Montgomery Boyce, who I draw on heavily for um, uh, these lessons, says that it would be a fool's errand to, to say otherwise. But if, if we say Christ died for sinners to restore them to God, if you believe on him, you are saved and can know that he's died for you, Boyce says that's a message worth proclaiming. And the hearers of that message have a gospel that's worth hearing. So he, he asks us to consider the other side of this, Boyce does. If those to whom we speak do not repent of their sin and trust in Christ, they are not potentially saved, as some would have it. They are actually and finally lost. So, it's a, like he says, it's a fool's errand to just think about potential salvation when there is actual permanent damnation on hand. The doctrine of atonement sets before the believer not only the availability of salvation, but also the necessity of trusting in Christ. So friends, do not say, but I don't know if Christ died for me or not. You can't know the answer to that in the abstract. This is something that has to be lived. The only way you will know 
like many of us have experienced, is if you come to Christ. Once you come to Christ, then you will know that you're one for whom he died. Therefore, come to Jesus, friend. If you've not done so, now's the time. Okay, brothers, sisters, friends, let's close in in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. May may, um, your word sink into our hearts, our minds, Father, that we meditate on it, that we mull over it, that it become meaningful to us daily in our lives, Father. Bless this day as we go on. Bless the preaching to come from Pastor Steve and the worship from Pastor Mike. Father, all this to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.